Okay, so it's good to be here, and uh, we have a, a lot to go over, and what I'm hoping to do is a couple things. One is to give you a slightly different perspective on modes of mechanical ventilation, and secondly, I'd like to make the argument that we should really consider preventing diseases versus treating them, and I think uh, acute respiratory failure, ARDS, is, is one of them. Now, of course, I'm going to give you a probably a non-mainstream perspective, but I do think it's important that we always have room in science, really, to have competitive ideas, because if we're all sort of stuck on one notion, then it may be uh, difficult for us to advance. Now, I, I do want to start by just showing you some of our experience here, which is summarized in this publication. Uh, we've been using APRV for 20-plus years now. It first started out essentially used solely for rescue of patients on extracorporeal circulation that were referred to us or even developed respiratory failure in-house. And we actually had a very high ARDS rate uh, back in the early 90s, as you'd imagine, with lots of trauma patients, lots of transfusions, and so on. But this is 230-some uh, patients that we recently went back, retrospectively looked at. And this is essentially a meta-analysis or a review of the literature, the trauma literature. Now, we're very focused on the trauma phenotype because I think what's clear now is that it's very difficult to box all of our patients into one category. And even ARDS is actually not a disease. It's a syndrome, which means it's a collection of things that we put together and we say this is a pattern that we see in a particular patient and certain patients at risk. So I think at the very least we should probably look at the phenotype and the mechanisms as opposed to uh, combining the patients together. Now, I just will tell you that uh, uh, as an example, the ARDSNET, uh, from the trauma perspective, actually had a very low recruitment for trauma patients. Actually, all, all trauma patients were from one center in Seattle, of all, all the ARDSNET hospitals. They really amount to about 4% of the total patients when you combine all ARDSNET studies published to date. So this is looking at just the trauma phenotype patient. And uh, we looked at 66,000 patients, and we compared them to our patients. And of course, there's lots of limitations here because this is retrospective and you know, essentially looking at published data. But what we did do is we tried to characterize the patients as best we could in, in two fashions. One, compare them to these other patients. So we're looking at their injury severity score. And in trauma, the injury severity score, the higher it is, of course, the more things that are damaged in your body and the more likely you are to have a, a, a problem with uh, respiratory function. So if you look at the injury severity score, this is our patients here in the upper quartile in terms of injury severity and the other patients are around 25. Uh, so you could say that's the same number but we're at least in the upper quartile in terms of injury severity. Here's our incidence of ARDS at, at shock trauma, 1.3% versus a mean of 14, and 3.6 with a mean of uh, 14 for mortality. Now, this is in-hospital mortality. It's hard for us to know whether it was ARDS mortality or not. I can't tell you about those 66,000 patients. I can tell you we had zero ARDS mortality in this group of patients. Now, that's comparing them to the patients, but I do want to characterize the patients a little bit better for you so you have a better understanding of what these 236 patients looked like. You saw the injuries, the mean severity score, but these are all things in the trauma literature that are associated with acute lung injury and ARDS. So that's sort of what happens to your body. But remember, to some extent, acute lung injury 
almost has this relationship with resuscitation or shock states, which generally force resuscitation. And clearly, if you look at the literature, both trauma and non-trauma literature, you'll see that if you give a lot of blood products, if you give a lot of FFP, if you give a lot of crystalloids, and especially in the first 24 hours. So this is really the first 24 hours, the mean volume these patients received. And all of these things, again, are associated with lung injury. Now, recently, there's been a sort of a compilation of data that tries to predict who's going to develop acute lung injury. And this is going to be very important, especially if you want to study prevention, especially if we want to actually take on the idea of prevention and actually do things. You want to identify people at risk. We certainly don't want to study a population that's not at risk, but nonetheless, you don't know when you're going to be in a car accident, but I suggest you wear your seatbelt all the time. Uh, so prevention, you know, we need some way to sort of sort this out. So if you look at all the data that comes out of all these centers and people that have done multiple studies on uh, acute respiratory failure, and you come back and you look mathematically for things that sort of stick out, you get a list that looks somewhat like this. And you can see these are the things that are associated with it, whether it's actual predisposing conditions or, you know, modifiers, uh, risk modifiers such as behavior, alcohol, and so on. And you can score the patients. You can do this actually within the first 24 hours. So you can take a patient and score them in the emergency department or in, the, in our trauma resuscitation unit as this was done. And you can essentially uh, come up with a number that gives you a prediction. Now, this actually has a very good negative predictive value. Not a positive isn't as good, but the negative predictive value is actually pretty high, which means that you're going to be studying a high-risk group. So this is what it looks like. Obviously, the more points you have, the greater the likelihood of having acute lung injury. And the mean for our patients is right there, 8.7. So the patients I just described, that's how they scored. So we do actually believe that this was a high-risk group of patients. They received a lot of resuscitation, they had a lot of injuries, and they also had uh, a high score, uh, lung injury prediction score. Now, of course, there's a lot of uh, limitations in that kind of study. We do have a prospective study uh, uh, marked uh, to start relatively soon since we get our ventilators back. Uh, but we decided to actually look at this in the lab because in the lab, of course, you have much more control. There's a lot of noise in, in uh, actually, there's a lot of noise in the lab, but even much more so when you're talking about human diseases and clinical trials, tremendous amount of noise. So just to show you what we do here, this is a 48-hour experiment using a large animal model that is translational. It exceeds all the American Thoracic Society's criteria for uh, translational model, and we, we give the animals a two-hit injury. The reason why it's two-hit is because pigs don't always get that sick with peritonitis. So you could put stool in the peritoneum of a pig, and maybe 70% of them get sick, but not 100% to the degree we want. And this model gives us 100% ARDS at the end of 48 hours. So that's really critical for us if we want to start prevention. So these animals have normal lungs, but we actually put stool, uh, cicotomy, put stool in their peritoneal cavity, and then we clamp their SMA. And when you clamp their SMA and give them an ischemic gut with the stool, they really don't like that, and they do, definitely do get sick. We use surviving sepsis. They have picocathers. They have swans. We put A-lines in. Uh, we put in all kinds of, we uh, monitor abdominal pressure. We monitor transpulmonary pressure. We do a lot of different things. And because they have uncontrolled septic shock, as you can imagine, they require a lot of fluid. In fact, the average fluid in this 48-hour period is 1.2 liters of fluid. They all develop intra-abdominal hypertension and so on. This is what the poor little animal looks like. 
However, they dedicate their life to science as opposed to dedicating their life to bacon and actually maybe uh, causing heart disease or something. Uh, but anyway, that's what it looks like. Uh, this is what it looks like after uh, you know, close to 48 hours. So you can see that we're trying to do everything we can to give this animal acute lung injury. And I would guess that most of you would say that's a fair uh, statement that these are likely to develop acute lung injury. So we actually have several publications. The one I want to focus on is actually a comparison between low tidal volume strategy and APRV as a comparison. So this was published in Shock. Here's the two groups quickly, and again, I can't really go into the details of how you set APRV. This is really more of giving you an overview and so on, but typically here's our three groups. We have the APRV group. Uh, we didn't target a tidal volume. That's the end result of the tidal volume in these animals because they started out with normal lungs, and I'll show you what happened in their lungs. The sham group is, is uh, ventilated with five of PEEP. We don't change it. They get 10 mLs per kg. And we don't do anything to this animal except open their abdomen and then close it right back up again. So they don't get fecal peritonitis, they don't get an SMA, they don't receive anything. It's really just a sham group. Oops, I went the wrong way. And of course, you saw the low tidal volume. So here's PF ratio. Of course, we're looking at the criteria for ARDS, which I will argue is not a very good definition clinically, but nonetheless, that's what we use. If you look here, this is the ARDSNET group. The ARDSNET group, right around 30 hours, breaches over into ARDS by blood gases. And actually, interestingly, the epidemiology of ARDS is the bulk of the patients develop ARDS within 30 hours of admission. So if you look at the epidemiologic human uh, ARDS tends to occur there. Almost 70% of patients develop. So this is an in-hospital disease. Sure, there's people that come in with a particular problem, uh, SARS, uh, H1N1, or other reasons. They may develop it earlier. They may develop uh, late ARDS, but the vast majority develop it within 30 hours of admission. So it's probably a preventable, or we have a window even to prevent it. Uh, the sham group and the APRV group actually stay pretty much along the same road here. And the FiO2 here is 21%. So they're actually still on room air at the end of the 48 hours. If we look at compliance, you can see, again, the compliance actually in APRV is super normal. There may be some reasons for this. We can talk about it later maybe if we have time. Uh, but the compliance is drastically different. So let's take a look at what the lungs look like. Now, for histology, we always inflate the lung to 25 centimeters. Otherwise, you get a lot of allectatic artifact. So that's a standard. So this lung is inflated to 25 centimeters. Of course, the chest wall is no longer here, so the inflation is really all lung. That's what the low tidal volume group looks like. Here's the APRV lung after 48 hours. Actually, that lung at 25 centimeters is a total lung capacity. It's completely inflated. Here's a few more animals I'll just show you just to be consistent here. You're looking at the, this is the cardiac lobe of the pig. The pig has a lobe right here next to the heart, the cardiac lobe. You can see a lot of edema and uh, congestion and inflammation. This is, of course, the dependent part of the lung, so the lung's flipped over. This is what it looks like on a side cut. It's have a lot of gelatinous materials. And, you know, not a, it's, it's kind of interesting what happens as baby proteins congeal. Let me just show you some more APRV lungs. They actually look really normal. That's what a normal lung should look like. Now remember, this animal was in shock, received lots of fluid, had abdominal hypertension, and all of this. 
let's look at the histology. So the histology here is the sham group, low tidal volume, and APRV. And the histology does not have any characteristics of diffuse alveolar damage, which is sort of the hallmark of, well, to be honest with you, it's the hallmark of any sort of inflammatory lung disease. It's not really that specific. Uh, but you have intraalveolar uh, septal thickening. You have intraalveolar debris. It should really be one cell thick and really nothing in the alveolar space. That would be ideal. Let's look at some inflammatory markers. And these are, this is IL-6 in the, on the BAL. So this is not systemic. In fact, when we measure systemic cytokines, they're sky high, as you could imagine, in sepsis. So the animals are not any different systemically. But BAL, there's a difference in the inflammatory markers. And you can see with APRV, the lungs going with the histology, going with the lung architecture, the gross anatomy, essentially stayed the same number, uh, stayed very close to the sham. Now I'll show you surfactant, because so we looked at surfactant. We looked at surfactant uh, protein A, protein B. There's actually several surfactants. And I'll just show you the one that was statistically. There was a trend for surfactant B to be statistically significant, but it didn't reach that quite that. So I'll show you A, which was statistically significant. B, of course, is what lowers surface tension. A is more immunologic. But you can see the western blot here, and you can see that the difference between the, the groups. Now, I'll just show you a quick slide of the ultrastructure of the lung, and this is what the lung really looks like at that level. You, you can see a red cell peeking out right here. This is the basement membrane of the lung, and the lung is relatively unique in that it has a single basement membrane, and on one side is an epithelial cell, alveolar space. On the other side is an endothelial cell, the vascular space. And because we believe that what the injury that was being produced is essentially a permeability injury to the endothelium, we believe that what we were doing was injuring this layer, breaching the basement membrane, and then sort of coming out the final layer would be the epithelial layer. So it's not a, it's a vascular side injury as opposed to epithelial side or endothelial side. So we wanted to look at the epithelial layer of the lung. And of course, that's what the lung is, just vast epithelium of type 1 cells, and then you'll find a type 2 cell somewhere in the distance there because it's really a barrier function. So that's an important thing to protect the integrity of the lung. So we looked at uh, a marker, epithelial cadherin or e-cadherin, which is sort of an adhesion molecule for the epithelial layer. And you can see that there was a difference between the two. So it kind of fits that the lungs looked pretty good when they came out versus the lungs looked severely damaged. And we'll just go through this a little bit quickly here, the hemodynamics. You can see that the mean pressure Here's how we started. There's the mean pressure in low tidal volume. There's the mean pressure, mean arterial pressure. Uh, here's the sham group. Now, as they get septic, you can see that the mean, ar mean arterial pressure goes down. In the low tidal volume group, the mean uh, arterial pressure goes down further. And if we come down to the norepinephrine dose, you can see significantly higher despite the lower mean with these uh, low tidal volume animals. That's around hour 42. Now let's just look quickly at some ventilator parameters here. So the tidal volumes were about 5.8, give or take, versus 12 versus 10 at 48 hours. You can see the progression of the tidal volume. Um, in terms of ventilation, where's ventilation? Or sorry, in terms of PEEP, we used actually the high PEEP scale. We had a lot of debate whether it should be the low PEEP, high PEEP. But there's a trend in the literature that we're going towards higher PEEP. Um, and you can see we use the higher PEEP scale here. So the PEEP went up, um, you know, quite high. 
In terms of ventilation, you can see a significantly higher respiratory rate, and the PCO2 is, with the standard deviation, almost double, despite the higher rate. There's a lot of rebreathing of carbon dioxide. So all this is very interesting, and the question, of course, is always in science, there has to be a mechanism. It can't be sort of magic or hocus-pocus. There must be some mechanistic reason. And of course, I can't tell you we understand it fully. We're doing a lot of mechanistic studies. We we're publishing sev several of them, and I can share with you some of the studies we're actually currently doing. But one thing that sort of struck us kind of right away was the lungs actually were not edematous. Or I I'll take that back. The lungs were edematous in the a APRV group, but the edema pattern was really quite different. If you look here, in the low tidal volume group, there's edema or remnants of edema, what you would expect because of lung injury uh, in the alveolar or distal airspace. But if you look around the airway, the lymphatics are very flat. But in APRV, the edema is around the airway, just massive amount of edema around the airway. And this is one of the things that were des described by Starling as the way the lung protects itself from edema. There's actually several of them. Albumin is an, or a colloidal pressure is an important one. But lymphatics, and the lymphatics are very dilated in APRV. And it may be that the lung water is really quite different. Or, said another way, if you can keep the lung from getting wet, especially with this very angry edema, it may not actually change the lung so much. It might not de deactivate surfactant. You know, surfactant is very sensitive to plasma proteins. Surfactant does not like plasma proteins. So exudation is actually a big, big problem for the lung. In fact, if you look at more of the chronology of uh, ARDS, and I would argue that this actually begins even a lot sooner than we can detect clinically. And there's many things that suggest that we see things clinically rather late. It's already going on at some level. And if you look, exudation is really the hallmark of acute lung injury. It's an exudative, angry, inflammatory pulmonary edema. And the lung tissue does not like that. And if you leave it sort of soaking in this stuff, eventually it will change. It will become fibrotic and scarred. In fact, we know that even survivors of ARDS, they're not quite normal. We've done something to their lungs. So edema is a very proximal event. And if it is proximal, if there's a way to stop the edema or channel it along the lymphatics, maybe we can do something about it. In fact, there's one very small clinical study. This guy at the Cleveland Clinic who talked to a couple times, but he took patients with ARDS and put them on APRV from conventional pressure control. And this is a very small study, and I won't say that there's really anything to conclude here. I do think it's interesting to look at. So our zeros before APRV, here's the extravascular lung water, here's the mean airway pressure, and here's the PF ratio. So we're sort of in ARDS territory by PF ratio. I still think this is insensitive, but nonetheless, that's what we have here. And if you look, our one, the mean airway pressure goes up to 26 because air, APRV is generally a higher mean airway pressure, lower plateau pressure. And you can see that the lung water is going down. By the way, take a look at the mean arterial pressure. It actually went up, not down. There's other explanations for that. Um, but look, they dropped the mean airway pressure and the lung water starts going back up again. So again, I won't tell you there's much to conclude here. I do have a colleague in the UK who actually is doing this right now, and he's seeing very similar results, that when you put patients on APRV and you use the PICO catheter, aside from pleural effusions and so on, because it can't really tell the difference, 
you may actually see a downward trend in edema. And in fact, if you do it while you're resuscitating patients, you may actually not get lung edema. It's something we've seen here for years, and of course I could bore you to death with multiple slides of x-rays actually getting better as you've given a patient 20, 30 liters overnight to resuscitate their shock, and their x-ray is actually getting clearer, not wetter. Okay, so just very quickly, this is not the only study we've published. There's actually many, many studies that we've published. I think there were up to four or five, I sort of lost track, in normal lungs. This is a, uh, another uh, paper that won an award last year, national award. Basically, if you leave, this is sort of mimicking the surgical patient. In other words, low-level ventilation, five a peep, what happens to their lungs? And if you recall, our sham histology actually looked worse. So anyhow, uh, if you put them on APRV, you won't see that, uh, at least in this model. The more interesting thing I want to tell you about is that the whole idea here is that because there seems to be some discrepancies here, you know, things that we believe should hurt the lung, at least on the macro ventilatory level, in other words, what you're seeing on the ventilator, don't have this linear relationship. And I sometimes use the analogy, and I ha actually use the analogy in an editorial in critical care medicine, essentially saying that just like in shock, the microcirculation is, has a nonlinear relationship to the macro circulatory parameters. And it may be true of ventilation. And if that's the case, we may need to sort of dig a little bit deeper to really understand the differences of what's happening in the lung, what's injuring the lung, what, how the lung is actually behaving. And all of these studies are focused on prevention. And I do think that, you know, at some point, I'll try to make an argument that we really have not moved forward. And this is what I want to tell you is that I personally believe that this is not a treatable disease. If you try to treat it, yeah, you'll, you'll win sometimes, but a lot of times you might not. Or let's put it another way, the mortality, in my opinion, is still unacceptable. And if you just look at the mortality of ARDS, you see this downward trend, and then it sort of levels off. And if you look carefully, well, first of all, that's the definition that we currently use. Of course, there's the Berlin definition, but this is the definition. That was when that was standardized. Before that time, all of these studies had all kinds of variability. Ten of peep, the definition was all over the place. If you read studies from the 80s, 70s, early 90s, you will see there's a spectrum of definitions of ARDS. So that standardized things, and that's the box there is when the ARDSnet enrolled patients, the first 2000 ARDSnet study. And you can see that observational studies randomized mortality really has not changed much. Now this goes up to 2004, so I just took the liberty of summarizing some studies that were recently done. And you can see the mortality. Now this is the low tidal volume group. In other words, the standard of care, low tidal volume group. You see the ARDSnet 2000, the LOVE trial, which was looking at higher PEEP, just like the LOVE, uh, the, um, sorry, the LOVE, the Express, those are both high PEEP, low PEEP with low tidal volume. You have the ALIEN trial, which was uh, 19 ICUs in Spain, all using low tidal volume. That's the mortality. The OSCAR trial, oscillate, these are high frequency studies, but the control group, the standard care group, was the low tidal volume group. So in my opinion, those are still higher than I think we would like. In other words, we shouldn't, I think, stop thinking about this problem. In fact, here's a recent article from key opinion leaders, and if you just read that pair, that little line there, it seems as though the incidence really has not changed. I would argue that a little bit. I think we do things a little bit better now, and so we may not expose the patients. However, the mortality is still 
I think, higher than acceptable. So I just want to take you back in time, and this is, believe me, is a very abbreviated view of this. But some key things happened to change our perspective. And actually, this was originally published in 87. And this is the concept of the baby lung. The concept of the baby lung, if you know Professor Gattinoni, who I actually spent time with years ago in Italy, very interesting guy, and uh, they described it as the lung of a five-year-old inside the chest of a man. So that's the baby lung. In other words, the area for ventilation is significantly reduced. And so that reduction would imply that you would ventilate with less volume. It would sort of think, you would sort of think that that's a very logical approach. And of course, this comes from looking at specific compliance. And the specific compliance in ARDS is actually normal. It's not low. When you, when you correct the compliance for the volume of the aeratable part of the lung, which is what specific compliance is. So that's important, and you can see there's a relationship between compliance and how much aeratable lung there is or how much lung is available for you to ventilate. The problem is it doesn't mean it's the same size in all patients. It doesn't mean that it's going to be stable. In other words, over the week that you're ventilating your patient, it may be shrinking, not getting bigger, might be getting bigger. The size of the aeratable lung changes. Now, this is the other key thing. And the interesting thing about this is this one small animal study, actually rats, really changed our perspective and actually launched, these two studies in particular, launched this whole idea of low tidal volume, which I think is a valid idea, valid approach to what we're doing. But this is questioning the notion of barotrauma versus volume trauma. What is the problem here? And of course, the study was done by Dreyfus. This is the original study where he strapped the chest of rats and showed that if you strap the chest, the airway pressure is high, of course, uh, but the lung is not as injured compared to ventilation sort of with uh, tidal volumes. Now, that, of course, launched a lot of uh, ventilator-induced lung injury studies. And just to show you, this is a summary of all those studies. I just want to point out one thing that's very critical. Look at the tidal volumes used in these animals. In fact, there's data to suggest that you really need a whopping tidal volume to actually cause lung injury. And these are normal lungs. Remember, normal lungs probably can handle a bigger tidal volume. But if you look at the tidal volumes, in the, in the Dreyfus study, the tidal volumes were 45 mLs per kg based on body weight. So that's a relatively large uh, tidal volume. Anyhow, that, that launched these studies. The first one probably was a motto study, 36 patients. Mortality in the control group was 71% versus 38% in the lower tidal volume, but actually much, much higher PEEP. If you look at the PEEP, they use really relatively high PEEP. And then that launched two other, three other studies. All of these three studies in the middle were no difference between the two groups, and you can see the tidal volume difference. It wasn't until the final... 2000 ARGENET study that there was a signal, a 9% difference in mortality. And again, you can see the tidal volume spread is actually the biggest, and the PEEP level is really not much different. So it seemed to focus on tidal volume as the key thing. So what I want to do is actually look at that a little bit more carefully, because I think it's important, especially since we're seeing sort of a different signal is to understand what is the mechanism of this. Because again, I think that it's important to understand mechanisms because that's really how it defines disease. In fact, if you read the 
If you read the original evidence-based medicine article, it's actually very interesting. There's many things that are forgotten about that. One is it still relies on observation. Two is it describes that when we do observe something or we have something, we need to define the mechanistic explanation. We can't just stop there. So what's the mechanistic explanation for this? Uh, it really comes down to stretch injury. And that's what uh, uniformly people say. But I just will tell you that if you look at the details, you might see some, some things that make you wonder a little bit more about the mechanism. So first, let's just review the breakdown of those patients. 3,400 patients eligible, 25% enrolled. And 75% were not enrolled or were eligible. And this is what I think is very interesting because those patients were followed by the ARDSnet. So the original study was looked at the patients that were not enrolled. Of course, you know the 612 ML. In fact, let's just take a look at that group right there. And if you look at that group right there, you will see that they were, these are the reasons why they were excluded. They were incorrectly enrolled. They were in another trial. Patient refused, unable to consent. Physician refused. Inclusion criteria more than 36 hours. But of course, they were eligible, so we get to sort of watch what happens to them. If you look at their mortality, their mortality is actually the same as the 6ML. There's no statistical difference. And what's more interesting is they were standard of care ventilation at 10 mLs per kg. So, you know, it's really important to really get down to the details of what's happening here. Now let's take that another step. And as I mentioned to you, I don't know why this, okay. What I mentioned to you is the mechanistic explanation. And I've gone all over the world. I'll tell you that every time I'm debating or arguing or discussing ARDSnet, low tidal volume strategy, APRV, it's always a discussion about what the mechanisms are. And one of the things that uniform is across the board, and I think you'd all agree, is that we're preventing the lung from being overstretched. That is the mechanistic explanation of why low tidal volumes work. In fact, that's exactly the last paragraph in the 2000 uh, study in the ARDSnet. But what is the signal there? What's the signal that we're actually doing what we think we're doing? And I think that's really important. If you look at some studies that were done about barotrauma, now barotrauma is a gross signal, but there's no difference. In fact, there's no difference between the 6ML, 12ML. In fact, there's never been a difference whether it's any ventilator parameter you want to look at. There is no correlation. It actually correlates more with disease. These are all the recent studies. You can see that the mean airway pressure is significantly different between the two groups here, the OSCAR and the oscillate trial. No difference in barotrauma. In fact, here's a study, 5,000 plus patients. No difference. Take any parameter you want on the ventilator. It correlates much better with the disease you have. Certain diseases more likely have barotrauma. Now, I'll confess, I don't think barotrauma is a strong enough signal. It's too gross. It's too crude. I, don't, I wouldn't rely on it. But there's certainly no signal that we're preventing less barotrauma by stretching the lung less. In fact, five years later, the Argonet investigators published this paper. And in this paper, they said this. We don't know the mechanism. We don't know the mechanism. Is it less barotrauma? Is it elevated intrinsic PEEP levels? Is it a protective effect of hypercarbia? Because there was a couple of publications that, and certainly a lot of animal data showing hypercarbia is lung protective. Was it diminished inflammation? And uh, this is what they concluded. There was no reduction in barotrauma, as I sort of outlined. 
there was no elevation of intrinsic people, though you could argue a little bit on that. And minimal hypercarbia, actually there was, well, let's put it this way. It, it, the study wasn't designed to detect that, and so I don't think you can say too much about that data. But interestingly, some 12 ml hypercarbic patients actually had the lowest mortality in the 2000 study. I'm not sure what that means. There's not enough N to really conclude anything solidly. Um, and then the last thing was they cited a study where they used actually very, very high PEEP early, and they were able to show on BAL less inflammatory response. So that prompted them to look at some of the study patients again. This is essentially a third of the original ARGENET patients. So this publication is looking at IL-6 in the 12 and the 6ML group and a bunch of other inflammatory markers. Let, let's just look at IL-6 for a second. And this is what they noticed. Now this is systemic. Now, I'll argue that systemic is not a good thing to look at here because the patient's disease is not stable here. Some patients are septic, some are not. And I'll show you that the, statistically, it correlates much better to whether they're septic or non-septic. But you see there's a trend towards a faster reduction in the inflammatory markers systemically in the, in the 6ML versus the 12ML group. So with that information, the conclusion was not sort of, we're producing less stretch injury, but it's really at a biochemical level uh, that we're actually in inflicting less lung injury. And again, you can see here, the statistics, if you read this paper, are much better correlated to whether they have sepsis or no sepsis. The septic patients were had a much higher level and correlate. Now, I showed you this before in our study. The BAL inflammation in the lung, and actually we have hemorrhagic shock, uh, rat model, all the same thing. The inflammatory uh, markers in APRV are actually very low. And you saw the, the gross anatomy that I showed you in terms of the huge difference. In fact, we did a comparison of APRV recruitment maneuvers, high frequency and low tidal volume, and looking at TNF-alpha and IL-8. This is, again, BAL. And you can see that it's significantly lower, statistically significantly lower in APRV. And that's with 15 mLs of per kg. So obviously there's some discordance here. I mean, it's certainly it doesn't make sense why we should, we're using big tidal volumes. We should absolutely be injuring the lung, but we don't really. So what is the explanation for that? And I'll tell you, it's actually, it comes back to what I would call a relatively elementary view of what's happening in the lung. And the problem is, if you treat the lung as a baby lung, where we're saying essentially it's a balloon, the lung is a balloon, and it makes perfect sense that if you want to decrease the distension of that balloon, you would decrease the strain, sorry, the stress, which is pressure and volume. And the strain is what the, the balloon is going to sense in terms of its distension. But unfortunately, or fortunately, the lung doesn't behave that way. It doesn't behave as a balloon here and a balloon there. And it's just, it's actually, very interdependent. So in other words, what happens to one part of the lung affects the other neighbors. And that's what happens. When you collapse part of your lung, the rest absorb the stress. And so the strain in those individual lung units are, is going to go up. And that's because of alveolar interdependence. And you can sort of see what would happen here. And we know this. If you've ever seen someone's chest x-ray that has a low bar collapse, what happens on the other side? It gets hyperinflated. And if you take that now down to a micro scale, you might realize that alveoli aren't going to quite behave that way. In fact, 
you look at some animal studies, sorry, if you look at some animal studies, what's driving the size of the baby lung is the rest of the lung around it. So if you produce a lot of collapse, what ends up happening is even though your tidal volumes are smaller, they're actually getting bigger regionally because there's no discussion about the topo topographic distribution. And remember, the question that the ArtsNet answered was really not what tidal volume you should use in a particular lung. They answered the relationship between tidal volume and body weight. But you can have someone with the same body weight, but they may have this much aeratable lung versus that much aeratable lung. So that wasn't really the precise question, and we still don't know the distribution of that tidal volume. How is it being distributed over the course of the lung? So here's one study. We know that if you actually decrease the plateau pressure in a patient and decrease the tidal volume, you actually may get a lot of collapse. And if you do, in this study, they were able to show that if you limit tidal volume and PEEP, you're going to get collapse. So you may actually be creating a smaller aeratable part of the lung. And again, even if we adhere to the plateau pressure and the 6 ml, is that really what we want to do? Even though the ventilator is telling us, hey, we're in compliance with everything that protects the lung, is that what's happening in the lung? And it comes down to that argument I just made about macroventilation versus microventilation. I don't think if your approach to circulatory shock is always macro circulatory and not micro, I don't know that you're going to have a, as good of an outcome. This is actually a study done where you're looking at 6 mLs per kg, and you can see patient A here has actually less collapse, which is denoted by the green here. This is based on Hounsfield units of normal aeration. Blue is normal aeration. And once you get into the red, you're creating an overinflation or increasing the gas density of the tissue. So despite 6 mLs in both of these patients, one patient is becoming overdistended. So there may be, again, a paradox here. And if you look, in fact, let me just show you the movie. That's a little bit better. Now, wh what you're going to see is coming back to, instead of the lung being one giant balloon, that we have 450 million alveoli. And their individual behavior is critical in all this. And if you watch this alveolus, what's going to happen is you're going to recruit. And then you're going to de-recruit. And now watch what happens to it. Because if you remember that the stress-strain relationship which is probably the mechanistic reason why the lung gets injured, is that really it's the pressure and volume in an individual alveolus and how much uh, distortion is occurring in that uh, alveolus. Now watch what happens when you recruit it. The alveolus that now shares the pressure and the volume. You're distributing the pressure and volume over a bigger area. And that's important because the distribution has a lot to do with how much injury you're going to have in the lung. Now, it's possible that you have a lung that is not recruitable. And in that case, it may be better to do something where you're very focused on minimizing the, the volume. It doesn't guarantee it, but you minimize that. But there may be an advantage, actually, to recruiting and stabilizing the lung because the normal lung can withstand a lot, but it's a huge area to distribute the stress strain. I mean, when you breathe, you deform your lung all the time. It doesn't fall apart because you're able to distribute that. Now, it's important to, to consider, and this comes back to prevention. I wonder if we're actually watching people collapse their lung, and actually the interesting hypothesis here is that when you collapse the lung, you decrease surfactant. When you decrease surfactant, you're going to have a sort of maldistribution of the ventilation. 
you're going to concentrate the ventilation to a smaller part of the lung and you may actually end up over distending it. And in fact, this, this may be the consequence that eventually you get non-clinical, but you get this trauma, allic trauma, and this actually causes injury and inflammation to the other uh, parts of the lung, and you may actually be driving this. And certainly there's models where that's the case. Now, what if I told you this? So continuing the theme of the paradox, of course, if I told you that APRV is actually a low tidal volume strategy, I could argue that it's maybe even a better low tidal volume strategy than low tidal volume, at least at the alveolar level. Of course, the response would probably be like that. If you're focused on the ventilator, now just uh, humor me for a little bit and let's not focus on the ventilator. Let's talk about, again, using the parallel of microcirculatory shock versus macrocirculation. If you look at macroventilation, macro is the ventilator telling us what's happening in the lung? The business end, where the damage is, where the gas exchange occurs, everything is in the distal airspace, that little tiny alveolus. Is this thing able to tell us with high resolution what's happening in the lung? And I would tell you that my answer is no. And let me just show you what alveolar mechanics look like. This is a lot of what we do. That's what a normal lung looks like. It doesn't actually move. In fact, gas exchange at the distal lung is all diffusive. It's not convective. There's no bulk movement. There's very little alveolar tidal volume. Tidal volume being defined as the change in volume between inspiration and expiration. If you look at an injured lung, you can see that it's going to have a big delta change in volume. Now, I'll show you something else. Uh, as I mentioned, one of the current studies we're doing right now is low tidal volume versus APRV as soon as we produce injury. And uh, we're using EIT, which is an impedance technology here. So it's trying to answer the question, because it's hard to do a micro microscopic view all the time. So this is at least some way to, to give us a better idea of regional ventilation. So if you look at these numbers here, 38, 22, 17, 19, you're looking at the four quadrants. If you look over here, quadrant one, non-dependent, non-dependent, dependent lung quadrants. This is what the lung looks like when the animal is actually right before surgery. And uh, it's, I'll show you the movie instead. But you can see that as soon as you lay an animal supine, you know, pigs aren't really made to be supine. We're actually not made to be supine. There is a loss of ventilation in the basis. There's no question about that. It's well documented. And more ventilation goes here. So we're going to try to look at where, the, where your tidal volume is going. Now, remember, this is 6 mLs per kg. And I'll just show you the movie towards the end of the study. And if you look, the ventilation, the wider that spot is, this is where we started, the one down here. All of your ventilation, 6 mLs per kg, is going into that one spot. 90% of the tidal volume is right there. And I'll just show you the movie and the microscopy. This is the low tidal volume lung. You can see where all the ventilation is. This is what the alveoli look like. Now these lungs are injured with tween, so no surfactant. They're surfactant deficient, and we ventilate them with 20 mLs per kg. These are rats. And so that's the type of lung injury we have here. So that's the low tidal volume group. Here's the APRV group. That's what the lung looks like in APRV. And please bear in mind that we're going to zero pressure here. So essentially, APRV ventilates your lung in a near-static inflation. 
So there's actually very little movement, and there's very little movement at the alveolar level. But let's get into, sorry, we'll skip over this here for a minute. Let's get into the, uh, here's what it looks like. So here is, you can see inspiration, expiration. And then what we do is we plot out the alveoli by highlighting them in yellow. And this is really quite painful. Uh, and here's the PEEP of five. So the lungs are completely unstable because they're surfactant deficient and they've been ventilated for 20, 30 minutes with 20 mLs per kg. And then we try to stabilize them. And we have APRV 10%, which is what I call incorrectly set APRV. And I would tell you that this is actually quite injurious, so be careful how you set APRV. And this is actually set like this all the time. In fact, a lot of the APRV studies that are published that people like to quote were set exactly like this. That's actually how we came up with the setting. We just looked at the literature that was out there. So you can see at inspiration, APRV actually gives you a lot of recruitment. In fact, it gives you more recruitment than PEEP, a 16 or even more, 24 a PEEP. And if you look, this is what I would call properly set APRV, you can see that the inspiratory expiratory volume change is very little. It's very, very small. And that's what you're seeing here. The gray is expiration. The uh, lighter gray is inspiration. So the delta tidal volume at the lung unit is actually very small. And you can see that with PEEP, you can do the same thing. If you don't use enough PEEP, you have a similar problem. Show you. So if you look here, you can quantify strain. And so strain is essentially you take something and you take it from its original length and you deform it. And so the more you pull it, the more deformation you're going to have. So the deformation is really critical here. So ideally, you would have maximal recruitment and minimal microstrain. So the microstrain in APRV is actually very low. Even all the APRVs recruit better, but the strain really goes down versus the strain is much higher in the 10% or incorrectly set APRV. Here is uh, what it looks like. So even if you're using 24 a peep, so this is an injured lung with 24 a peep, and you can see that 24 a peep, the lung doesn't move very much, the alveoli. But peep is not a good recruiter. So even if we have 24 a peep, we can still recruit more with APRV. And of course, that's because APRV is a time dependent. The time is really what's different. You're not changing the volume in terms of uh, during the duration of the breath. There's a fixed period of time for volume, and then the whole time you're just holding the pressure. And if you look at just holding the pressure, this is what happens to the lung. It takes a lot to recruit the lung in terms of time. So time is a really critical part of the lung. So it's really hard to get the lung recruited and open with a short inspiratory time. You really need to extend the time to get the lung to be more stable. If you stabilize the lung and recruit it, you're going to have a bigger area of distribution, and the, and the alveoli aren't really going to move much. So coming back to this study, I want to point out that this is the microstrain versus the alveolar tidal volume. And there is a relationship there where, of course, the smaller the delta changes between inspiration, the less deformation you're producing in the lung, and what you're having is that the strain goes down. And if you don't use APRV correctly, you're going to actually produce more strain. Same thing here for PEEP. This is 6 mLs and, and PEEP. You can see that when we use conventional PEEP settings, we may be under-PEEPing our patients. And uh, what ends up happening is that you can get somewhere with PEEP. Now, of course, you can use PEEP, and PEEP's fine. You're probably not going to recruit as much, 
You're not going to have as much area. And lastly, your plateau pressures are going to be higher. In fact, the plateau pressures in the apiary group are lower. But also remember, you're getting a much bigger tidal volume. So if you look at the tidal volume, and we've broken this down into tracheal, in other words, the airflow going past the trachea versus the change in volume between inspiration and expiration at the alveolar level, they're actually quite different. And certainly one explanation is if you have a lot more alveoli, they don't have to change much to give you a bigger volume. You know, more people are paying, so you can get a bigger dollar amount without having to raise the price. So th that's why there's a dissociation between the tracheal tidal volume and the alveolar tidal volume, or how much that inspiratory expiratory change is occurring. So here you have almost, uh, what is that, 10 and a half? 10 and a half, same airway, let's call it the same plateau pressure. So I get 10 and a half tidal volume, mLs, versus six mLs, and the strain actually is a little bit higher takes a lot more people. You have to look at the scale here. This is uh, alveolar tidal volume, tracheal tidal volume, and of course here's the, the uh, microstrain scale. So this paper, uh, again, uh, won an award and is in JAMA surgery. Hopefully it'll be published soon. Hopefully I didn't lose my talk. Well, we're at the end of the talk anyway, so <laughs> convenient. So, uh, oh, there we go. So one last closing uh, remark, really, which is that I think it's important to consider this topic, which is how useless it is to be that certain. And to be honest with you, scientifically, you really need to keep trying to understand what's going on. In fact, you know, question your own beliefs. I do that. I don't like to do that, but I do it because I need to understand what's happening. And that's important. In fact, just to give you a little history here, this, uh, this fellow, this is the guy responsible for us not eating meat and eggs and everything. So the 1950s, he's the one that sort of drove the notion that diet affects heart disease. And uh, he went to visit several countries. He actually visited Crete, and he decided that the Mediterranean diet was really the best diet. Unfortunately, it was after World War II, and so there were sort of peasants that were going through hardships, and they were having, it was Lent. So they weren't eating meat and, and so on. But anyhow, he, he classified that. And in fact, this is a recent publication questioning whether there's really saturated fats are that bad for you. Of course, I'm not plugging that you guys should all just eat a lot of eggs and steaks and so on. But you know, it takes a long time for us to really understand things. And I think it's important to keep asking questions and trying to understand things rather than superficially at a slightly deeper level. And uh, we might be out of time here. So thank you very much for your attention. Nader, do you uh, prone people while on APRV, or have you done that? And would there be any benefit of that, like additionally? To, I mean, you're talking yeah. about the dependent um, atelectasis that occurs regardless of the uh, mode of ventilation to a certain extent. You know, just given our body habitus. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you look at if you look at proning, um, you know, we've used proning for a long time. In fact, we were not discouraged after the studies really didn't show anything. And again, that's another example that it takes, you know, time before we sort of change our minds. And so everyone across the board has now accepted it. Uh, but I do think that if you keep the lung inflated, I think that that's 
to me, that's the trick, is to keep the lung from sort of collapsing and then the tidal volumes loading up, even if they're smaller, loading up in a smaller part of the lung. I think if you keep the distribution more even, that's important. But you can get into a situation where there's so much collapse then in order for you to recruit the lung, you're going to have to go all on airway pressure. And we know the lung inflates with pleural pressure, airway pressure differentials. So I don't see the wisdom in, in raising the pressure to 60, which a lot of these recruitment studies take 60 to 70 to pop open those very dependent lung units, which means you have to go through the healthy stuff. Why not just flip them over, modify the pleural pressure, and use much lower airway pressure to get a transpulmonary pressure that is required to recruit the lung. And I think that will protect the, the lung. There's actually a few papers that suggest recruitment maneuvers, even in the prone position, are safer than in the non, in the supine position. So I think a, a prone position is absolutely an important thing. I will tell you, my personal experience is that we actually use it much less than we used to. Um, and honestly, when, when we use this now more preventatively, when we bear these other things in mind, that this patient's at risk for getting resuscitation, this patient's at risk for lung collapse, what do we need to do to keep their lung volume stable? Not tidal volume, lung volume. Remember, the FRC is 30 mLs per kg. It's not a very small volume. It's an important lung volume, just like tidal volume is. And so maintaining FRC is really important. It really can make a difference in terms of gas exchange, your ability to breathe spontaneously, and of course, uh, distribution of the stress strain of tidal ventilation. And just for the group, can you explain the difference between, uh, from a, at the bedside, difference between 10% APRB and 75% APRB? So everyone's on the same page in terms of Yeah, I should have done a better job of that. So, so in, with APRV, we use a, essentially a pressure of zero. The release pressure is zero, but of course, I don't know if you noticed, but the lung doesn't actually move. And that's because time constants are what you're controlling. So you'll, we use PEEP to retard expiration to maintain an end expiratory lung volume. We're trying to make up for the loss of FRC. So the volume is actually what yields a pressure. So what ends up happening is with APRV, we're not using a set pressure at the machine. We're controlling it because the airflow is so, uh, it's naturally slowed down by the endotracheal tube. And so what we can do here is use time to control it. And I th we're working on a paper now. It seems as though the time constant cluster to get the lung to behave sort of very stable is much narrower than the PEEP cluster. In other words, you have lung units that want 10 a PEEP, ones that want 20 a PEEP. It's hard to do that. But the, the time constants are within 0 .05 of each other. So you can control things, I think, a little bit better. And our studies show that it takes, if you injure the lung, it takes 24 a peep to get the same stability as a P-low of zero and 75%. If you use 10%, which means that you're letting the lung sort of exhale essentially more completely, if you want to think of it that way, then what happens is you're letting the lung get down. Eventually, if, you, if the T-low is long enough, then what ends up happening is you will get to zero. There's no question that the, there will be no more flow and that's the problem. And unfortunately, the bulk of the literature is using that kind of philosophy. Interestingly, there's no difference in the groups when they do that. So when you compare it to low tidal volume, you know, small studies, low tidal volume, equal SIMV, equal outcome, no real difference. But I would argue they're incorrectly set based on our work on microscopy. And so what, what's your intrinsic P for the P low um, in, the, in your settings typically? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, honestly, uh, this is a, I'll try to make a very short discussion of this, but I think it's important to, you can think of it as intrinsic PEEP, occult PEEP, and so on, but it's really dramatically different than when that was first described. In, in my era, 
where we didn't know about it, and the next thing you know, the patient had you know hemodynamic problems, barotrauma, everything, and we didn't realize that the PEEP was really much higher than what we'd set. And the original name was actually Occult PEEP. That was the original paper by Pepe and Marini, Occult PEEP. Now, the ventilators of that era were closed ventilator systems. In other words, you define inspiration, you define expiration. In between, the patient could not do anything. With APRV, even though you're maintaining a volume, you're basically letting the patient sort of flex that. Because it's an open breathing system, if the patient's end expiratory lung volume goes up, they actually will push it out. A whole section on that, and I have lots of videos, that would be another talk, to be honest with you. But that's what they do, is they control their end expiratory lung volume because they have the freedom to regulate that. So it's not completely locked out. But if you wanted a number, the pressure is roughly, depending on the patient, it's not going to be more than half of your PHI. It's going to be between a third and a half of your PI. If you do an expiratory hold, you'll see that the pressure does this. All right. All right, great. Thank, Thank you, you very much. You're welcome. Thank you.